0: Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. It's time
1: for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham.
0: This week we're going to catch a lot of flack and get to the bottom of the story. It's episode 371 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. Man, do we have an amazing Group of guests this week, starting with Anna Paquin and Stephen Moyer, real-life husband and wife. She plays Robin on Flack. He's the executive producer and one of the directors as well. Going to be talking to Anna and Stephen about working on the show and working together, by the way. So it's a little bit of a true-blood reunion on the show this week as they talk about Season 2 of Flack, now streaming on Amazon Prime Video. Speaking of now streaming, I've also got Brooklyn Prince and Jim Sturgis, from the Apple TV Plus series Home Before Dark. This is our first episode of Season 2, just dropped today on Apple TV Plus as well. Also going to be talking to co-creator Dana Fox about what's going to be coming up this season. Plus, it was Netflix Geeked Week this week. Going to be talking about some of the biggest news coming out of that. Yes, my spoiler-filled review of the first episode of Loki from Disney Plus is going to be coming up this week as well, and Green Shaft back as our sponsor this week you want a great deal on the number one meal kit for eating well yeah that's going to be coming up a little bit later on in the show too but let's start off with anna paquin herself star of the amazon prime video series flack we'll talk to her next on the down and nerdy podcast
2: Hey, this is Kobe Bell from The Gifted on Fox, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy podcast.
0: Sometimes the biggest stars make the biggest trouble, and this week that is on full display. Season two of Flack is now streaming on Amazon Prime Video. It's a really fun and deep story about a PR agency in London and all of the stars that they represent, but also it's a it's a massive story about addiction as well. Very, very interesting show. If you haven't had a chance to check it out yet, and hey, got a little bit of a true blood reunion on the show this week because I'm going to be talking to Anna Paquin about her character of Robin, also executive producer and director, and her husband too, by the way, Stephen Moore, are going to join me in a few minutes. So I got a chance to attend a round table for the show with a bunch of other amazing journals who I'll talk about here in just a second. But the first question, question to Anna Paquin, was actually for me and I wanted to know about Robin's addiction issues and how they affect her character. Here's what she had to say. So obviously from the very beginning, Robin's addiction issues have been a big part <laughs> of this show. So how do you feel like the show kind of deals with not just addiction itself, but the fallout of that and what it can do to the people around you as well?
3: Well, it really goes to goes to show that, you know, it's it's an illness and it's not one that people can I mean, almost never get control of just out of sheer willpower. And unfortunately, it is one of those illnesses that has terrible fallout for the people around the person who is ultimately being driven by something that is destroying them, but that feels like the most important thing in the world. And it's complicated and it's sad. But also one of the things that I like about how we tackle it in the show is that you don't just have everyone in her life automatically forgiving her and going, oh, it's okay, because that's not real, you know? And people people living with loved ones who have severe issues in that arena, love isn't always telling someone, it's okay, I forgive you. Sometimes love is telling them they need to pack their bags and leave. And we do see her struggling with that and the behaviors that, Look, are not I'm not going to blame them entirely on on addiction, but a general level of self-destructiveness as, as a person and mental ill health as a person and how much of a tornado that actually creates, both for herself and for the people who are trying to love her.
0: Like I said, serious stuff, right? So then one of the next questions asks one, asked by one of the other journalists was, though, that, about that balance between not just the heavy stuff in the show, but in the humorous stuff as well, because the show certainly does have humor in it and how they find those moments to work that in. Here's what Anna had to say.
3: Part of the DNA of the show is that humor is as integral to the storyline as drama, salacious gossipy, fun stuff and darker themes like the addiction and mental health stuff. And I mean, for me in real life, I know humor is how I move through difficult situations and, I think sort of as an audience, that's how we are sort of guiding people through this world. And then also that just because somebody is going through a lot of nasty stuff in their personal life, it doesn't mean that the world stops being funny sometimes. (laughs) And she doesn't, it doesn't completely stop her from being, you know, being the person that she is. And she, you know, is someone who has a sense of humor and and there is that aspect to her as well. And I and I love that. In in this, we haven't kind of just picked between one or the other because I feel like that gets done often too. Where, you know, once there are serious issues involved, nothing's allowed to be funny, and I just don't feel like that reflects life. And so, yeah, that's uh, that's very important to me.
0: Getting back to that addiction aspect for a second, I know the one the journalist asks a really insightful question about how does Robin's addiction is that something she feels like she needs this to actually be able to do her job, otherwise she wouldn't be able to do it at all.
3: I think that definitely factors in that there are, you know, I mean, even just the number of the hours she keeps of having to constantly be on all the time and look put together and be put together and fix other people's messes. And that, yeah, I, I, that the, the moral line that gets blurred a lot, I think medicating your feelings around that, I think certainly is part of how she has, become so good at that. And that's become a very unhealthy way that she's been very good at her job. And it's one of those things where she's gotten a lot of positive reinforcement for the results she gets, that it's not till sort of things really get bad, that the people around her start questioning, but why are you able to do all this stuff? And maybe, maybe this isn't actually really a good thing after all, you know, it's like, Caroline's kind of created her in image as this turbo, you know, hard-nosed publicist, but at what expense?
0: The last thing I wanted to ask Anna about was that dynamic between Robin and Eve, which I love so much on the show. A little bit of a spoiler in this question, though, if you haven't gotten a chance to see the end of season one yet. So just a heads up on that. But here's what Anna had to say about that relationship and what might be coming up this season. And I kind of really love the dynamic between Robin and Eve, not just this season, but last season as well. But of course, at the end of season one, we saw what happened with Tom and everything. So that seems a bit up in the air. But at the same time, I don't feel like their relationship, whether you call it a friendship or professional, is like conventional in almost any way. So how do you think what happened at the end of this season is going to affect that dynamic carrying into season two for those who haven't seen it, of course?
3: Yeah, you know without giving too much away for people who haven't seen season one, there is a really large betrayal of trust between Eve and, and Robin that isn't really out of character, but actually is because she actually, she and Eve actually are incredibly close and they're, they're so different yet. So kind of flip sides of the same coin and her relationships with the women and her friends in her life are actually the, the primary relationships. Her boyfriend who's at home and is kind of kept in the dark about a lot of stuff and doesn't really know a lot of what she does out in the world is in some very real way not her primary relationship so it's kind of like somewhere between sort of a, a sister and like almost an intimate relationship that she has with Eve as far as when she does the thing at the end of season one it's not really about the third party involved it really is about that like massive break in their relationship. And, you know, she is going to have to work very, very hard to earn back the trust, earn back any level of civilized, you know, interaction and maybe, maybe trust. And she is trying, but you know, things get complicated.
0: Next up was Anna's husband, actually Stephen Moore, who is the executive producer on the show. Also got to direct a couple of episodes. This time around as well. So that's one of the first things that I wanted to ask him, not just about being able to direct the show, but to direct his wife in the show, in these particular episodes, see what he had to say. What I wanted to ask you was you actually got to sit sit in the director's chair for a couple of episodes this season, actually the latter, the latter two episodes of season two, which actually also happened to be the most heavy episodes for Anna as well. So given that, I mean, what was it like to kind of put those just raw emotional episodes together?
1: The, the prior season, I was, I was still in Atlanta doing The Gifted. And, and so even though I'd set it up and helped exec produce it, I wasn't there as much. Second season, I was working as well, but, the, but I knew that, the third, that that the end of the this season, I was going to be free. And what that meant was that the ones that we had talk, possibly talked about me directing happened to be these two episodes. And that actually, I think, worked out very well for everybody because Anna and I have a really great working relationship and a trust and it just happened to be that those these were very t- two very very deep and dark episodes. You know, Robin is a an addict who's is got this terrible nihilistic streak, and we knew that we were going to a difficult place with the character, and we knew that we had to do it properly if we were going to do it. So it was really great that it ha- that it was us because because I was able to be because Anna when she does it, Anna Anna when when she works, she goes to the place, she she doesn't hold back. And that has repercussions, you know because you don't just go there and not have a an emotional response to what you've just done. And so I was there to sort of help her with that. and, and you know back in England, you know I've still got house from from when I was there when, before I came to America, which is really ha- helpful for us. So being able to go home, not by yourself to some sort of hotel room, I think was really helpful because it's because it, you know we, we put Robin through the ringer a bit this year. As, if, as you know, if you've watched like the, the six episodes. So it was amazing. You know, she's just extraordinary, my missus. And it, it, it's, a pl- it, I, I, it's just such, I'm so grateful. And so to be able to work with her and see her brilliance and be able to have some kind of part of helping create that. It's an extraordinary character who we've taken really to sort of the, you know, we always knew that season two was going to be sort of Dante's Inferno. That was our model you know, show her how she is and how she's sort of coping. Season two will be the the descent and into her finding out some stuff about herself and, and going to where she gets to by the end of that. And so we had an amazing time surrounded by all these brilliant actors as well. You know, Sam Neil is a, is a friend of ours and I've worked with him and i obviously worked with him on the piano. So we had a relationship with Sam. Daniel's lovely. Martha Plimpton obviously came in. And also some friends of mine. Mark Warren was back, who's one of my best friends, and Kevin Bishop, who's also a dear friend of mine, just being brilliant in episode six. So she's surrounded by people that she has massive respect for, as well as obviously Lydia and Rebecca and Sophie, like holding on to her. So I, I don't know, I, I you know, and we know it goes to some difficult places, but we also know that it, there's a lot of truth in what's happening to that character that we wanted to talk about.
0: So the next question from one of the journalists was talking about the intensity of some of these episodes and some of the deep issues that are going on there and asking Stephen, what does he hope that the audience takes away from that? Here's what he had to say.
1: Anna is a very authentic human being. So we, we knew that when we were going to be talking about addiction, we weren't going to be doing the glossy version of addiction. We were going to be doing, obviously our show is about the gloss and scraping away the gloss. And her character is the person who puts the gloss out there so that you don't see the underneath but she's just a normal human being who's got shit going on underneath her stuff as well and as it gets worse and as it stuff starts to bubble up for her we start seeing more dark than we see the gloss until it's just the dark and that's what happens with addiction it's like it, we get to those places of where you're not taking intervention from anyone else nobody's helping you and my wish for it is that people see themselves reflected somehow and can see Maybe that they're not as bad as that, but they've still got an issue or something like that. And by dealing with it and talking about it, you are able to cope with it before it hopefully gets to the place that it gets to for Robin.
0: The final question for Stephen from one of the other journalists was really a great one. It was, and the question was, is Robin so good at her job because of how messed up she is and because of where her moral compass is? And here's what Stephen had to say
1: to that. Because of her own experience of the world, she knows how much effort has to go into skating on the surface to clear up that stuff. She's probably become brilliant at this job because she's so good at doing it for herself. But the tagline that we always used when we were selling the show, because we've been developing it since like 2014, 15, was always like, great at sorting other people's shit out, crap at her own, right? And, you know, oftentimes that is how we are. You know, the best psychologists, are often the most screwed up people because they 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 know how it feels and and you know a lot of us are really good at giving advice but not very good at taking it right so you know that's sort of the thing that we were looking at with Robin. There's only so much covering up you can do. There's only so much gloss you can apply. There's only so much, so much glitter that can can be put on the top before it gets smudged away. And we in the first season set up this character in the first 20 minutes who is in charge and in top of it and completely in control. But the truth is that she has been on this hamster wheel for like 12, 15 years when we first meet her. She's been covering all this crap up in herself all that time. It just so happens that the audience meet her as it's about to drop. But we have to imagine that, that she's been doing great. She's been, she's, she's risen up the food chain. She's become very, very good at, we, you know, we're not interested in showing somebody being, it's like Alan Ball, right? When we were doing True Blood. As soon as he put Deborah Ann and Jim together, Jessica and Hoyt together, everybody wanted that relationship. It's like, it's just this beautiful relationship that's happening, right? I think it's episode three, season two or something like that, or maybe three season, episode two, season three we were like, oh my God. But Alan isn't interested in showing people like being happy all the time. As soon as he put those two together in that beautiful episode, we were like, they're fucked. Because it's, he puts obstacles in the way. You know, and that's what we do with drama. It's like, he he would never make my character do anything the same again, he would put or if he did make you do it the same again, he'd put an obstacle in your way the next time. So how's he gonna deal with this? That's what life's about, right? We're doing great, we're dealing with with all our stuff and then this happens. And, and I think the audience are interested to see how people deal with the same stuff that we're all dealing with on a daily basis. So that's what we tried to do with Robin. And obviously, we take it to extremes. Like a lot of the celebrity stories are true. A lot of those things that those people are doing are true, but we take it to the extreme version of of how deep and how far that has gone because it's entertainment.
0: We'll definitely get to see that on full display. Flack season two premieres on Amazon Prime Video on June 11th. Stephen Moore, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, man. And you want to talk about a roller coaster of humor and fun, and then just deep, dark storytelling. Flack really has it all. If you haven't caught up on the show yet, Amazon Prime Video seasons one and two now available of Flack and Man Anna Paquin is fantastic in this show, but there's so many other great members of the cast, and of course, Stephen Moyer, her real life husband, being able to be in the director's chair for those final two episodes of season two, you'll see how much of an impact that makes when you get there and how just just insane those episodes are. So make sure you're watching Flack on Amazon Prime Video. That's going to do it for our interviews with Anna Paquin and Stephen Moyer. I also want to thank of Fanboy Nation, Monica of Temple of Geek, and Kathy Woods of the Cup of Soul Show for the great questions they had with me during the roundtable as well. Up next, going to be talking to the stars of Home Before Dark from Apple TV Plus and co-creator Dana Fox as well. We'll also join Brooklyn Prince and Jim Sturgis. Up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Josh Gates from Expedition Unknown, and you're listening to the Down
2: and Nerdy Podcast.
0: One series that I hope you've been watching from the beginning, and if not, season two starts right now. It's Home Before Dark on Apple TV+. It's a great series about investigative journalism and these great mysteries, and it's actually a young journalist named Hildy. It's based on a true story. It's a really, really intriguing watch and in about a small town. It's very, very good. Just happened to be able to sit down with the, one of the co-creators and the stars of the series actually to get a little bit more insight into things so let's start with the stars brooklyn prince who plays hildy lisko and jim Sturgis who plays her father matt lisko and hear what they had to say about the series Brooklyn, Hi, jim, good morning to you both how you doing good morning good. how you Dave? doing very good very good first question actually is for you brooklyn we know that hildy's written her first big story brought some changes to the town things are going good but actually do you think that could bring up some new challenges for her this season?
4: I think now that she has gotten her respect and everything, I think now people, they don't really talk to her. I think they get a little bit overwhelmed by who she is and the kid that she is because she is very strong and very, she has a big aura and ego to her. I think that she's learning now with because she takes herself very seriously as a journalist now, I think that she's having to balance journalism and the other relationships, trying to make it all equal. In the season, I think it's a little more heartfelt felt than last season, which was just you know journalism and Hildy and
0: stuff. Actually, on that chord, Jim, this is one for you because as a dad, this struck a chord with me. How difficult is it for Matt, as a parent, to to want to see Hildy follow her dreams, much like he did, but? At the same time, just have her moments where she can still be a kid.
2: Yeah, I think it's hugely important and more so in this season than I think the first one. I think he's he's very aware that the Richie Fife story from season one is still, you know, it's a huge part of Brooklyn, uh, Hildy's. She, she's starting to have bad dreams about Richie and she's it's affecting her in a very deep and personal way. And I think he always, he sees himself in, in Hildy all the time. So he sort of knows what she's sort of going through and how he has to sort of guide her to make sure that she doesn't go down some of the same paths that he maybe went down, where he feels like he lost his childhood a bit, I think, because of what happened with, with the Richie Fife case. And and so he doesn't want to see Hilde have go through the same thing. So, yeah, he's very protective in that way and tries to sort of manage her expectations in solving certain investigations and, and what that might mean and and just trying to sort of steer her on the right path, but sort of, yeah, help her, sort of guide, guide her through it, I think.
0: This one's for the both of you because I just, I love watching Matt, Matt and Hildy together. I just love it. So, what is the favorite part? What's the, what's your favorite thing about that special relationship that they have?
2: I think it's the same that me and Brooklyn have for each other in a weird way. It's that there's, although there's a huge age gap between the two of us, there's a huge amount of respect for each other. There has to be. I mean, me and Brooklyn are working with each other all day, every day. And we, you know, we really have to sort of dive into the characters together. And I think Matt and uh, Hildy have a very similar relationship with their relationship with journalism is that, you know, they really respect each other and he really doesn't look down on Hildy at all. And he really offers himself out to even learn from from his daughter and, you know, be open to sort of have have a young person sort of teach him a few things once in a while, you know.
4: I think that last season, Matt and Hildy had a very meshed relationship. I think Matt's kind of trauma with journalism and moving back to the town he was putting that kind of into his daughters and i think it was kind of meshed their journalism relationship and their father-daughter relationship i think this season it's more clear cut i think on the journalism side matt takes hildy very seriously and hildy takes matt very seriously and i think or her and their daughter father relationship they love each other very deeply and i think like to hildy matt her best friend. And to me, Jim's my
0: best friend. Oh, mm-hmm. that, that's such a great way to put it. And you guys Aww, will see thank that. Thank you, Pete. That'll be in full display when season two premieres on Apple TV <laughs> plus on June the 11th, home before dark. Yes. Brooklyn. Well, and, uh, Jim, thank you so much for joining me. One of the things I really do love about the show is that father daughter relationship between Hildy and Matt. It's really, really just such a very, very unique, almost partnership. That they have. I mean, father and daughter, but also partners in journalism as well. So I think that Brooklyn and Jim put that very, very well. Let's actually keep things going with co creator of Home Before Dark, Dana Fox, and see what she had to say about this upcoming season.
5: Hi, James. Nice to meet you.
0: Hi, Dana. Nice to meet you as well. I mean, last season kind of left us on a little bit of a cliffhanger there. So, but we've seen the trailer that it looks like there's going to be a little bit more going on. So, how do you feel like the show is going to balance Richie's disappearance with this new mystery? you've got coming up for us.
5: You know, for me, it was really important that we signal to the audience that don't worry, you are going to find out the answers to all the questions that you have left over from season one eventually. But it was also really important to sort of say, we're starting a new mystery. There's a whole new thing to solve. This isn't, you know, the Richie Fife case isn't the only weird thing in Erie Harbor. It's not the only bad thing that's ever happened in this town. So what we tried to do was kind of make sure that for everybody who was desperate to find out what happened at the end of season one, they would be really satisfied by season two in addition to kind of making the world bigger more exciting letting the kids kind of go on slightly bigger adventures get out of the house go to crazier places so we feel like we really kind of did that i hope i hope everybody feels that way too
0: you actually change up maybe not necessarily the family dynamic this season but certainly the household a little bit so without spoiling anything how will these changes kind of test the family early on
5: you know, I think, thank you for reminding me not to spoil anything. I'm terrible at that. I usually just
4: tell the whole thing. <laughs> <It's my job. laughs> I'm like, the answer
5: is, the wife did it. It's <laughs> it <says-."> um, <laughs> Yeah. So I think what's interesting is that the family dynamic is going to be tested in ways that we didn't really see as much of in season one. So one of the issues that I have with the show is that like I get so emotional about Hildy's emotional struggles. (laughs) And so I Mm -hmm. always kind of want to see her have to grapple with difficult things. And so... You know, the dynamic in the house is sort of widening outside of just her and Matt. So, you know, she and her father have this incredible bond that's especially strong because of journalism. And I kind of wanted to push it that a little bit and test it a little bit and have them be at odds about different things. And I think that's important because that's part of what growing up is as a child. It's sort of like a little bit of being able to kind of break away from your parents. And I think the other hard part is that there are things that are gonna happen in the family that are kind of heartbreaking and that we get to watch these characters try to solve a mystery to kind of stop something heartbreaking from happening. It feels like an emotional ticking clock that was really exciting to me.
0: people are gonna find out all about that June the 11th when season two of Home Before Dark premieres on Apple TV Plus. Dana, thank you so much.
5: Thank you so much, James. Can't wait.
0: And that is just scratching the surface of what you're gonna see in season two of Apple TV's Home Before Dark, which you can see the first episode of right now. If you thought this Richie Fife Thing was interesting last season. Wait till you see what they've got in store on top of that this season. Plus, the way the dynamics change for Hildy and what's going on in the town and what's going on in the sheriff's department too. I didn't even get a chance to touch on that. There's so much change and a monkey wrench really thrown in the second season. If you were already a fan, I think you're going to be even more so for season two of Home Before Dark on Apple TV Plus. This week, the Dan and Nerdy podcast is brought to you by Green Chef, and I've been using Green Chef for a while now. Actually, I always go with the keto box because I, I eat gluten-free and that usually has the, some of the best gluten-free options. There's, if you're paleo though, plant-based, they've got plenty of things for you there as well. But it's a way you just want to eat more balanced and have a lot of great options that are just ready to go and just ready for you to prepare. And you can have dinner on the table much, much faster. And you can, you can make leading a healthier lifestyle a lot easier that way. You get home-cooked meals, options that work for whatever you need, and not the other way around. And here's the deal. Everything's actually hand-picked for these recipes. Organic veggies, high-quality proteins, and it's delivered right to your door in pre-measured and mostly prepped insulated packaging. So yeah, you throw everything together, and you've got dinner on the table really, really fast. As a matter of fact, if you ever have one of the options with pork chops in Green Chef, They have some of the best pork chop recipes I've ever had. So anytime I get my Green Chef box and I see pork chops in there, I know it's about to be a good night because they have some great pork chop stuff. And as you probably know, I also have HelloFresh, which HelloFresh owns Green Chef. And it's a really good balance between the two, actually. The recipes are different. They certainly vary. And you get something a little bit different each time with both. So I like going back and forth between the both of them. But if you haven't tried Green Chef yet, let me help you out. Go to greenchef.com slash 90nerdy and use the code 90nerdy to get $90 off, including free shipping. That's greenchef.com, the number 90, nerdy, and code 90nerdy to get $90 off, including free shipping. You'll find out why Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well. So hey, get dinner on the table a little bit faster, get something that might be a little bit different than what you're used to, and hey, eat a little bit better with Green Chef. Again, thanks to the cast and the co-creator of the Apple TV Plus series, Home Before Dark, for joining me this week. Up next, time to get into a little bit of mischief. My spoiler-filled review of the first episode of the Loki series from Disney Plus is next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Luke Mitchell from Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and you
4: are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
0: It's time to get into a little bit of mischief on Disney+. Plus. That's right, the Loki series has finally premiered, premiered on Wednesday. Gonna give you my spoiler-filled review of this first episode, Yes, so yes, spoilers for episode one of the Loki series coming up. Also gonna drop some tidbits from the Loki press conference that I attended before the show premiered as well. Won't be able to use the audio, but I could tell you what was said by the wonderful panel, Tom Hiddleston, Owen Wilson was a part of it, Kevin Feige, and many others were there as well. So I'll go through that a little bit. But what I really loved about this story was how it continued Loki's story. And one of the things that Tom Hiddleston brought up right at the beginning of the press conference was that, you know, after Infinity War, he still felt like that was the end of Loki's story. He said it felt so final. But then at the same time, he said, I knew that Endgame was coming around the corner and in the scene where Loki picks up the Tesseract and disappears in a puff of smoke. Where does he go? When does he go? And how does he get there? And that was kind of the kickoff for the new series. And even Kevin Feige said when they shot Infinity War, they didn't really know exactly when they were going to have this series. But by the time they went around shooting Endgame, that's when they sort of started getting the idea. And that's when it started happening. And you see in the beginning of this, in the first episode, that's where we start off. We see where Loki goes. We see where he ends up. And then you see him get caught by the Time Variance Authority. And that's sort of where everything begins. We get introduced to the Time Variance Authority and the Guardians of Time and the Time Keepers. And one of the things I really love was the, the first part of the show was just so hilarious. Watching Loki go through all of the motions of actually being captured and processed by the TVA and in classic Loki fashion he doesn't take them seriously at all but they don't really have a whole lot of trouble taking him down at the same time and then there's the scene with the paperwork which was hilarious there's a scene where he's not sure if he wants to walk through that little almost metal detector type thing because he did not know if he's going to get vaporized and and you see him start to comply but my favorite line in the whole first episode is when he's getting processed right and there's a clip of this on our youtube channel actually if you want to go see it if you haven't seen it yet and and she and the judge says how do you plead and he said mad is and i'm paraphrasing his madam my god doesn't plead and i'm like oh that is so loki and then of course you've got gugu and both who plays and Renslayer, and she's the one that's presiding over this whole thing right and that was just such an amazing scene and it sets up Eventually, Loki looking like he's being recruited by the Time Variance Authority to work with them to try and figure out what's going on with these agents that are suddenly being picked off one by one at all these different areas where these variants are popping up. And then you've got Agent Mobius who's played by Owen Wilson who is kind of one of the top agents trying to track these variants down and you know keep time the way it is because the whole point of this whole thing we find out is to, is to keep time the way it's supposed to be, but it's a little bit more complicated than just time as well because it works the multiverse in there, and I really don't want to spoil too much of any of that, but you, you find out that time is not as simple as you think it is in this particular point, but then once we get Owen Wilson's character of Agent Mobius and Tom Hiddleston's Loki together, I mean, the chemistry between the two of them is unbelievable, really. I mean, it's just, they fit so well together. It's like this perfect combination, and, and the way that they go back and forth at each other, you've got Agent Mobius with no powers whatsoever, and of course, Loki, who we know is kind of powerless in this sense, too, because he's in captivity. But it's amazing that mental chess game that they're playing, right? And Loki acts like he's not falling for it, but at the same time, you can see Agent Mobius trying to get inside the head of Loki, and it, almost knowing—what's it, crazy, it's almost like Agent Mobius knows Loki better than he knows himself because he, as he says at one point, it's like, I know how your story ends sort of thing because th- that's just part of what's the Time Variance Authority was all about, knowing time. And one of the reasons I think this worked so well, and Owen Wilson brought this up at the press conference when, when, he was, for, when they were first getting into the role, he actually got together with Tom Hiddleston And Tom would do these things called Loki lectures. This was a real thing where he would actually teach the people involved with the series about the character. And he said it was really important and really helpful to our dynamic once we started filming the scenes. Because some of our conversations, just when we were kind of going over that stuff, would work its way in. And then Tom Hiddleston, on the other hand of that, was saying how Owen Wilson asked such insightful questions and actually brought up some things for him, and I'm paraphrasing this, that you know he he made him think about loki in a different way as well and the other thing that tom hiddleston said in the press conference was one of the reasons he likes playing loki so much is because he says it, it never feels like the same thing and again i'm paraphrasing there he said it never feels the same it feels different almost every time he plays the character and again this is a very different version of loki that we see you know we still see the the, the villainy we still see the mischief mischief side Of Loki but again this is a a very much probably the most grounded version of Loki that we've seen so far but watching these two play off of each other and see this I I don't want to say bond because that's it's too I, I don't think we can go there right now but you see this understanding almost coming between the two of them and it's funny because pretty much everybody's warning Agent Mobius not to not to work with Loki not to get involved with Loki any of this stuff, and for some reason, he just wants to be a part of, he wants Loki to be a part of the team, or maybe he thinks, like, this is their only hope, so it's a push and pull there, right, because you know that you're dealing with the god of mischief, and and, and Owen Wilson already uh, also talked about that in the press conference as well, he's like, how's my character going to match up to the god of mischief, and to a god, and how that was crafted so well by writer Michael Waldron, also director Kate Heron, and Kevin Feige, as well to really make it make sense. And then you've got this, the Time Variance Authority agents. And I got to tell you, when you see Wumi Masaku walk onto that screen as Hunter B-15 and you see her own almost every scene that she's in, because she's the first one to take Loki down in the first place. It is just downright impressive. And you want to talk about somebody who is really just committed to to their to their job and committed to what the timekeepers have created here with the time variance authority and she is about as by the book as you get but then that's also the fun of this series because you get to see that book slowly being thrown out little by little as the ep- even the first episode wears on right but you also get to see how high the stakes are For what's going on and how not only this could affect the TVA and the fact that they've got agents being picked off, but also the timeline as well. And we get to find out why Loki is a key element to what's going on here. That's one of the big cliffhangers that we have at the end of the episode, and that's something that I won't spoil. But the thing that this series does is, again, it paints Loki in a little bit of a different light. and We get to see him a little bit off-center is the best way I could describe it. We get to see that, you know that cockiness that 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 facade kind of get dropped a little bit at one point. And you also get to see that amazing chess match between he and Agent Mobius played by Owen Wilson. And we also get to see how this really is a different sort of take on time travel and a different approach to a multiverse type situation. As well, not again, not going to get into any specifics as far as that's concerned, but you see how the two kind of kind of connect to each other through this time variance authority and what it is that they're actually trying to do. It's actually explained quite well by Miss Minutes when you watch the episode. And I, I already love the character of Miss Minutes, too, by the way, and which who you see on the poster for one of the one of the posters that was released for the series. But I love this show already because it's fun. It's interesting. Clearly, we're going to get a look into Loki's history, and it just feels different. Again, I I feel like I've said this for, at least with WandaVision anyway, I feel like these Marvel series on Disney Plus are really giving us a different feel for the MCU, and after, you know, 10 years of giving us these amazing movies and telling these stories, while they're still using their formula and it's still working, they're telling stories in a different way And using a more long-form version to do that in these series, I think, is really working out for them. Especially with a character like Loki, who has, and Tom Hiddleston touched on this, is such a rich, rich history. And there's so many ways you can go with this series and with this character. And this is also the first one of these series so far. That even after one episode, you can sort of see where you could do multiple seasons of this show if you really wanted to. Because of how the premise is set up. Now that's not, there's no spoilers in there at all. I'm just saying, once you watch this first episode, you kind of get the vibe of, huh, you could easily see how they could keep this going if they wanted to. Now we don't know how the six episodes going to play out, but I can tell you that I got a chance to see the second episode a little bit early. And if you thought you had to avoid spoilers for the first episode, wait till the second episode, because there is a major, major reveal and revelation in the second episode. There's also a ton of, going on as well. So, I mean, yeah, we're only going to get six episodes, but at the same time, the first of all, they're hour long episodes. So there's that. So they're a little bit longer. And second of all, they are just jam packed with so much good stuff. And when I say jam packed, I'm not saying that they're overloaded. There's just so much going on all the time. You definitely don't get a break in these shows, but it's funny. It's smart. What else would you expect? from something with Tom Hiddleston and Loki in it. I love the writing. Michael Waldron does a great job, and, and Kate Herron's just fantastic as the director of this series. This, this show has it all. It really, really does. So if you, if you were a fan of the Loki character and you wondered what was going to happen once he picked that Tesseract up, you had no idea, and I had no idea, the ride that we were going to be on, and I cannot wait for every Loki Wednesday to watch Loki exclusively. On Disney Plus. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of the first episode of Loki, and of course, the press conference as well. Thanks to the folks at Disney Marvel Studios for letting me be a part of that press conference. Up next, hey, this is where it all started, right? Got to start talking about comics. It's what we're reading on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
2: Hi, this is Greg Rucka, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
0: Whether you're seeking eternal life or just another way of healing, whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading. And this week, i going to start with a book that's not quite out just yet. It's Compass Number 1 from Image Comics. And if you're a fan of Greg Rucka's work, you'll know some of these names. Robert McKenzie and David Walker writing this one. Justin Greenwood on the art. Daniela Miwa on the colors. Simon Bolin on the letters. Now, this story follows Shaida El-Amin, who's almost kind of like when you first see her. You feel like she's like a tomb raider, right? And she's she's after a certain artifact. You later find out, though, that she's way more than just that. She's seeking knowledge. She's seeking certain artifacts. She's actually a member of the House of Wisdom from the Islamic Golden Age. That's not a spoiler. That's in the description for the story. Now, she finds herself from Baghdad to 13th century Britain. She's actually seeking a, a, the secret to eternal life, which apparently is somewhere in in 13th century Britain. Now, you can imagine how she's welcomed, right? Just given the time period. And also, you can also imagine she's not the only one that is looking for this. And actually, it's the mystery of who else is looking for it that it adds a really intriguing element to this story. Plus, there's a little bit of an offhand connection there between Shaida and one of the people in this other group. It's just not revealed what that is exactly yet. Now, there's a lot of action in this book especially in the early going. I don't think we think we see our first word bubble pop up until like the 5th or 6th page. And you know, whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing as a, as a matter of opinion, I actually really enjoyed it cuz it gave me the vibe of where of what where they were at and what she was doing, which was really really cool. We've had a lot of golden age based stories like this before, but this one certainly gives us something fresh and certainly characters that we don't usually see get focused on. In this time period, so yeah, we've seen stories like this before, but the beauty part is, is that this is a different story, and it really feels like that. Plus, you've got Justin Greenwood on the art. I mean, the Last Siege, Stumptown. Doesn't matter what you've read and loved of his. You, this is something that you'll also love of his as well, no doubt about it. It makes it, it the art makes it a very easy read. the The, the story's good too. But the art really has to jive with that, and it does. It really gets to shine early on, too, which I love. And when you've got Justin Greenwood on your book, yeah, give him some pages to just to just let him go. And you, good things will happen, as they did in Compass, number one. So if you haven't added that to your poll box yet, you might want to do that. Certainly pick it up at your local shops on New Comic Book Day when you go to pick up your books. Heroes Reborn, Night Gwen, number one, is the next book we're going to go with, Marvel Comics. Vita Ayala on the writing for this one. Fari Karami on the art. Eric Arcaniga on the colors. VCs Corey Pettit on the letters. And David Nakayama with a sweet cover for this one. Now, it's actually set in the Heroes Reborn world where the Avengers never existed. And the Squadron Supreme are actually Earth's Mightiest Heroes. So if you haven't been reading Heroes Reborn, I don't think you necessarily need to to enjoy this issue. I just want to get that out of the way right away because this seems like also seems like a pretty darn good standalone story as well. And yes, it does follow Gwen Stacy. She's Nightbird behind a mask, but when she's not behind that mask, she's Dr. Gwen Stacy of Ravencroft Asylum and one hell of a therapist. I must say. And and they give they set that up really well too. This this is not an oversized issue, but it kind of felt like it because you get so much backstory in there to explain what's going on now or at least make it make sense, which I really, really love. We also have Misty Knight in this book who's a DC detective and a good friend of Gwen's, by the way. Luke Cage is the police commissioner. So I love all of those things right off the bat. So maybe a little bit of spoilers from here on out. We've got a cop who's, who's very close to the Stacy family that has been killed, and the investigation is on. I mean, it's, it's almost like, okay, well, it seems like a simple investigation, right? And we see some familiar Marvel villains along the way, but it's merely a cameo, Compared to who's really responsible, and I'm, I'm again and again the amount of things that this issue gets into in just one issue is is incredible to me. The way that the, this issue really just cuts to the chase of the story, I feel like is really really impressive. We do see another familiar face, but a different a, different alias. And I got to tell you, the connection to Gwen is set up very well in this issue to this particular character, which I won't spoil. I also love how the story takes a look at the psychological angle of things. It also focuses on the healing as much as the capture of these villains. And there's there's a little bit of a interesting view of ideals between Gwen and Misty, too. Misty being, you know, the cop, and she doesn't know that Gwen is the vigilante. So, and, the, you know, you get almost a classic clash of ideals there in a way, but, you know, she can't really reveal that either. So it's that's a very, very interesting dynamic. Also because I feel like... Gwen and Misty might be more than just friends in this issue. That's very open to interpretation in this story. So I'm curious to see what your thoughts might be on that. But but Vita Ayala just knows how to tell such a great story. And I and I, I got to give them credit. The way that they were able to craft the story and get so much in. And it didn't feel jumbled either. That's the other thing. You think, well, did, did it all get crammed in there? It really didn't. It was really succinct. And the way that it was crafted... You almost felt I almost felt like I was reading a, a forty fifty page book, and it's not. It's a standard size issue, maybe a little bit oversized, but a standard size issue. So, and then you've got the art, which is just as good, and it actually, for me anyway, it had that bro- Bronze Age feel, but it was blended with the modern look that you'd see in a lot of books today, and the lettering too. There were a couple really you know winks and nods to to the Bronze Age, and even even almost the the Silver Age as well, I thought, and the lettering in a couple of spots, so I thought that that was really, really neat. This is a book that I wasn't sure if I was going to love or not, but I, I tried it because Vita was on the book, and I really ended up enjoying it. I really liked the character of Nightbird and the story that was crafted here, so yeah, give this one a shot. It's Heroes Reborn Night Gwen, number one from Marvel Comics. That's going to do it for what we're reading up next. Netflix Geeked Week happened, and that's not all. There's plenty of nerd news ahead. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
3: This is leigh from Lucifer, and you're listening to the Diplomity
0: Podcast. Netflix making it seem like con season. It's time for nerd news. And I got to tell you, this Netflix Geeked Week, this virtual event that Netflix did, as far as I'm concerned, was a huge success. So I'm going to recap some of the bigger things that interested me, certainly, throughout Geeked Week. And I'm going to go through these as quickly as I can because there's a ton of stuff. and And, you know, we could be here all day basically. So I'm going to start where you'd expect me to start, and that is with Masters of the Universe Revelation. Still coming out on July the 23rd, but we got the first teaser for it. Let me tell you, we knew that the animation was going to be gorgeous from Powerhouse Animation Studios just because that's Powerhouse, right? But the way that they bring these Masters of the Universe characters to life, to me, was just eye-poppingly incredible. I mean, the first look photos don't even do it. Justice. Plus, I mean, there is a ton of action. You get to hear Mark Hamill as a Skeletor, which already is money in my book, as far as I'm concerned. Just from this teaser, then you, you just get character after character after character reveal, and, and you go as a child of the '80s, your your head is spinning at all of these characters. You're seeing, hey, we're even seeing Orko being getting a little badass moment there. Oh, yes, Orko. If you're a Masters of the Universe fan, you know how big that is. Now, the the, the teaser doesn't really give us much in the way of, of the story. We've got the synopsis. We don't really know a whole lot about the story beyond the synopsis. And what this does is, again, it just shows off the big action. It shows off the I'm, I Need a Hero soundtrack on the on the teaser. And it also just gives you that 80s vibe with some of the coolest modern animation that you could possibly have. So even if you don't know the story, isn't that enough? It is for me. And by the way, there's going to be an after show that's hosted too. Of course, Kevin Smith's going to be a part of that. He's a showrunner and host Extraordinaire. Of course he'd be a part of it. Tiffany Smith, who is the voice of Andre in the series, also going to be a part of that. Again, she's got a background in hosting stuff. And one of the execs from Mattel going to be involved in that as well. So I mean it's clearly Netflix is pretty serious in going all in on Masters of the Universe Revelation. I'm excited about that. I'm excited for jo- July 23rd. Can't wait to see what's going to be going on with the rest of that series. Stranger Things Season 4 got an update. No, not the update you wanted. There's no release date, no tra- no official trailer, anything like that. But what we did get was some casting updates. We got four new members of the cast. And I'm not going to read it ad nauseum but you've got A- Amy, Amy Beth McNulty, who's voicing Vicky who is a little bit of a band geek and might be catching the eye of one of our heroes in the story. You've got Miles Truitt as Patrick. He's a Hawkins basketball player, but of course there's a secret there. And here's the one that got me the most. Regina Ting Chen is going to be playing Miss Kelly, who's a guidance counselor at the school. If there was ever a school that needed a guidance counselor, it's Hawkins. Where has this guidance counselor been this whole time, right? There's been shit going on. In Hawkins for 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 what seems like forever now, and now here's the guidance counselor. So season four is finally giving us something that that mental health wise, I think these kids have needed for a while. And, and we kind of it, it was almost like I didn't know I needed the guidance counselor until now, and I don't know why I didn't think of it. So shame on me. And you've also got Grace Van Dyne, who's going to be playing Chrissy, who is the most popular girl in school, cheerleader, but of course there's a secret lingering deep down. Dark dark, and deep there. So, again, somebody very popular and gorgeous is going to have a secret. We've seen that before in the Stranger Things realm, have we? Also, by the way, if you're a Robin fan, Maya Hawk is going to get a, her own scripted podcast series called Rebel Robin that's going to be centering around surviving Hawkins as well. So, if you love Robin... And and you just and there's also going to be a young adult novel based on the character, too, too that's going to be coming soon. So, if you love Robin... You're going to get plenty of Robin while you're waiting for season four of Stranger Things. And yeah, they're they're still in production. So I'm sure that we'll get an update on a release date soon, maybe even a trailer. But no official updates on Hopper. Nothing official on Brenner or anything just yet. Still the teases that we have. Sure, we can draw our own assumptions. But again, we don't know absolutely for sure what's going on there. But it was nice to get an update. As far as Cowboy Bebop is concerned, the live action adaptation of the anime series that's going to be coming up. A big, big update that I'm sure made fans breathe sigh of relief and very, very happy. Yoko Kano is going to be composing. And why is that important? Well, because Yoko was the composer for the Cowboy Bebop anime. So, yeah, the the music was a big, big question mark for fans coming into this live action adaptation. And now we know the music's going to be done by the same person that did it originally. You can't complain about that. You just can't. You bring in the original composer... That should at least assuage some fears coming up for this series, and it's going to be released in the fall. So, I mean, this seems like a fun bounty hunter story anyway, even if you're not familiar with the anime. But at the same time, the music's going to be hugely important, so bringing in this original composer. It seemed like it was the only call to make, because then now you're taking that out of the, out of the way of fans being able to say, Well, you didn't do this. Well, they did. So now you're gonna to have to find something else to criticize if you decide you don't like it. Lock and Key season two, we are updated and find out that is gonna be coming out in October. We got some first look photos from there as well, and it seems like there might be a little bit of dissension in the ranks of these of these demons, right? And and we don't really see a whole lot of fallout from what happened with the Omega Key in this in these photos. But again, they're photos, and it looks like we might be exploring some other keys as well this season, too. So that should be interesting. Speaking of second season, Shadow and Bone are going to get a second season on Netflix, given the fact that it was one of the most popular shows of the year so far on Netflix. I should not be a huge surprise. I'm actually... I feel like they saved this announcement for this event. I feel like they could have made this announcement a lot sooner, and we're going to, but they wanted to save it because they knew they had this Geek Week event coming up, so why not save it for that? So they, that, that almost seemed like it was a no-brainer. And one of the first announcements of the week, by the way, Transformers War for Cybertron will drop its final its final kingdom. That's going to be the the final chapter in that story, that anime for Netflix as well. That's going to be on July the 29th. We got to see a quick posters from that, which looked really, really good. They mixed some new stuff in here too, by the way, along with some updated stuff. You've got Twilight of the Gods and Zack Snyder again, back with Netflix. It's going to be an animated series about North mis- Norse mythology. And let me tell you, a hell of a voice cast. I mean, first of all, when I see John Noble's name on anything, I'm interested immediately and he's going to be the voice of, of Odin. So, I mean, could anything make more sense than that? Yes, we are going to have Thor as a part of this. is Pilo Osbeck is going to be the voice of Thor. Yes, we're going to have Loki, Pattinson, Joseph, Patterson, excuse me, Joseph is going to be the voice of Loki. You've also got Raul Coley, who's going to be the voice of Egil, and there's so many other just great characters. Hell's going to be a part of this as well. Jamie Chung, going to be the voice of Hell. So yeah, plenty of characters to look forward to. Got a couple of familiar faces from Game of Thrones as a member of the cast as well. So we don't know a whole lot about it beyond that. But an anime series, excuse me, animated series about Norse mythology. Nothing wrong with that at all. As far as I'm concerned, so I'm very curious to see what that's going to look like. No release date yet set for that. As we move on, though, and we look at something a little bit different, we've got the Loud House movie. Yes, the Nickelodeon show, the Loud House, which is a movie coming to Netflix as part of that deal from not too long ago, going to be coming on on August the 20th. And the Louds are in a much bigger house. Looks like there's a little bit of royalty there. If, if, If all the kids have their own bathroom. Yeah, that should tell you how big the house is. So that, that's just if you're a Loud House fan or if you've got kids, that's something to look forward to. One of the things I loved was the behind-the-scenes look at The Sandman. That adaptation is going to be coming to Netflix as well. We get a behind-the-scenes look, and there are already so many practical effects that are being teased. And when you see Neil Gaiman react to one of the set pieces in this video, he walks in the room and, and it's like literally walking into a page of his story. That's going to be an amazing feeling, doesn't it? To be able to experience something like that. And, and that's a joy I, I don't think that I'll ever experience. It's not like I can walk into a room and suddenly you know feel the effects of, of being on set of the Down and Nerdy podcast because it's my freaking room. So I, it wouldn't be very surprising, would it? You want to make a mock-up of my, of my, my studio, my room, and have me walk in? And I'm not sure they're going to have the same effect. But, I mean, it was just amazing to see his reaction, and the cast seems excited as well. So, And, again, you could see where the money's going with these practical effects. And Resident Evil Infinite Darkness, of course, the anime series coming on July the 8th. They showed the opening scene of that. It's, a, it's like a basic military op that we see there, so it, it, but it just teases what looks like some of the best animation that you're going to see, quite frankly. It is stunning detail. And, and only fitting for a Resident Evil series. Some intriguing new stuff as well, though, I want to talk about. And one of them is Kate, which is going to be an action thriller film starring Elizabeth Winstead. And it's basically a ruthless crime operative who, after being irreversibly poisoned, she has less than 24 hours to exact revenge on the enemies and in the process forms an unexpected bond with the daughter of one of her past victims. So we only got a motion poster for that, but it looked really, really interesting. We also have Sweet Girl, which is going to be a film starring Jason Momoa, and it's going to be about a devastated husband who vows to bring justice to the people responsible for his wife's death while protecting the only family he has left, his daughter, who's going to be played by Isabella Merced. So, again, Jason Momoa coming to Netflix, nothing wrong with that. Another one that you might be familiar with already is The School for Good and Evil, which is based on the young adult fantasy novels from Somain Chainani, and it actually follows a group of girls and boys that were taken to an institution and trained to become fairy tale-like heroes and villains. So again, some very, very interesting stuff that's going to be coming to Netflix, and there's still a lot of other things, too. Go to downandnerdypodcast.com for a little bit more about what's going on. But again, I could be here for days talking about all the amazing things that are coming from Netflix Geeked Week and so many amazing reveals. And bravo to Netflix for putting together quite a digital event. Here's something I did not expect to be talking about this week, and that is a Lord of the Rings anime film that is being fast-tracked by Warner Brothers and New Line. And now, forgive me, because I'm going to butcher the hell out of this name, but I'm going to give it my best. The Lord of the Rings, The War of the Rohirrim. And this is actually going to be based in the same universe as the Peter Jackson live action films, but it's going to be set before that trilogy. And an important note that was pointed out in the press release, this is a standalone film, but it's a bit of a companion piece to what we've already seen. And it expands the story of the Forest of Helms Deep, which is a very, very interesting story to be told. It's going to delve into the life and blood-soaked times of one of Middle Earth's most legendary figures, King of Rohan, Helm Hammerhand. Yeah, if that is a story you've been waiting to be told, you're going to be getting it here pretty soon. And Kenji Kamiyama, who did the Ghost in the Shell standalone complex TV series, is going to be writing the script. You've got Sola Entertainment that is going to be working on the animation for this one. And you know what? At this point, why not? Why not? I mean, it actually surprises me that we haven't had a Lord of the Rings anime before now. But I feel like I've said that a lot, too. And I feel like this is a great time for anime. As as much as, you know, fans that have been fans of anime forever would say, hey, what the hell, we've loved anime for for a lot longer, and now all of a sudden everything's anime, and maybe that frustrates you. There's never been a better time for anime. So everything is getting an anime adaptation nowadays. And is there anything wrong with that? I don't think there is really. And Lord of the Rings is going to look gorgeous in anime, as far as I'm concerned, especially this is this is the right story to do it. Now, we don't know who any of the characters are going to be. There's no casting. Obviously, there's no timetable for this release yet. They say they're fast tracking it. I don't know if that means they're going to try to get this in, in 2022. I don't see how that's possible. I think it's probably going to be early 2023. But I mean, hey, if they're fast tracking it, maybe they are going to try and get it in screens. A little bit sooner so that is something to certainly keep an eye on but yeah am i excited for this absolutely i'm excited for this why wouldn't you be just based on the description now you know that could change based on what we see and what we what we get from trailers and things like that but i mean again warner brothers knows how much a lord of the rings franchise can print money they're going to make sure that they do justice to this and get a good cast for this as well so i'm really looking forward to seeing what they can do there Here's something that I actually thought wasn't going to be coming as soon as it did, and yet it is here. We got a first look at Camris Johnson as Batwing from the Batwoman live-action series, and the suit looks good, doesn't it? I always thought that Batwing had one of the better cows of the Bat family in anyway, but they did a great job with this suit. Maya Mani, who does a lot of the Arrowverse suits, deserves a lot of credit. For the design on this one. Now we do know that we're going to see Batwing this season. We also know that it looks like John Diggle is going to be one of the one of the people that helps Luke along in getting to the point of being Batwing in the first place, and along this journey as well. And let's face it: if you've been watching Batwoman, this team needs all the help they can get this season, anyway. It just I feel like it's going to be interesting to see how this changes the dynamic of the team in the field. And how things are going to go. Because Luke was so dependent on being like the guy in the chair, right? The guy who guides everything through. Now being in the field, how is it going to change things? We saw that dynamic change on the Flash when Cisco became Vibe. And suddenly Vibe was in the field a little bit more, too. So they figured that out. I'm sure that they'll figure this out on Batwoman as well. By the way, the, Carlos Valdez leaving ba- leaving the Flash this week. I mean, an amazing run on the Flash. So thanks to Carlos for bringing Cisco Ramon to life in such an amazing way as well. Whew, feels like we covered a lot, but that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to my many amazing guests this week from Flax Season 2, also Home Before Dark Season 2. Make sure you're watching both of those things this weekend. And make sure you're supporting our sponsor, Green Chef. Go to greenchef.com slash 90nerdy and get the, use the code 90nerdy. You get $90 off your first order, including free shipping. Get some amazing meals from Green Chef. Follow along with us as well at down and on social media at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and Instagram and at nerdy on Facebook. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.